It's a privilege for me this morning to, uh, to have back with us uh, one of my dear friends. Uh, Dr. Grady and I were trying to recount, but we, we realized we've lost track. It's been over 20 years or longer that he and I have known each other, and uh, I've uh, been blessed by that friendship tremendously. I started to introduce him first service as a house of prayer mule, but I knew that would take some explaining. Uh, Dr. Grady goes into parts of the world that uh, that makes it, a lot of times he's able to carry love and our greetings in ways that we can't get there. And uh, so I appreciate that very much. Um, Grady McMurtry is a is a founder of Creation Worldview Ministries. He, he kind of operates out of Orlando, Florida. He... Uh, uh, is a missionary, a teacher, a biblical scientist, creationist, scientific creationist. Uh, he has worked on, he works in, on five continents on a regular basis. Last year he was only in four, uh, but uh, God has honored that. And I do want to say that if maybe since if you have, if, if you were here a couple of years ago, I think when he was here, there's in the, on the resource tables out in the foyer some new information. There's a, there's an, and he has CDs and DVDs. Probably going to be doing a message this morning uh, uh, that is on this on this uh, DVD. Uh, but you're going to we're going to get a, a shorter version, and he is able to spend a lot more time with this. But it's in the foyer. Some uh, some new books, and this is one that just caught my eye out there. It's a from uh, Institute of Creation Research. Uh, Guide to Dinosaurs, and this is this is kind of geared toward younger people, but he has them geared toward adults also. But take a look at the resources on the table. Uh, they're from really for all age groups, from 2 to 102. If you're here 102 or older, uh, Dr. Grady is going to offer you a free, one free resource on the table. Now, you may have to have data proof of birth there, but, uh, but that. Also, if you would like for him to sign, I know uh, he's going to be here. He's not going to leave till everybody's uh, been you know, sufficiently served. If you'd like for him to sign a copy of a book, he can do that. If you're interested in his educational newsletter, which which I receive through the, uh, which I've been blessed by, sometimes I had to go back and archive it and look up some of those archives for information on that. If you're interested in that, talk to him and he'll get that information to you. Uh, he's not always been a biblical creationist. Uh, he grew up in Berkeley, actually out in California, one of the most liberal campuses in the nation. And uh, he grew up as an evolutionist and spent the first 20-something years of his life as an evolutionist, even teaching some of that until God got a hold of him and changed his heart and now has sent him around the world uh, and has really been honoring the ministry of that. But uh, a lot. We, I do want to say I want to introduce him as uh, his, he's Nancy's husband. And uh, last year his wife had some, uh, some uh, unexpected, sudden physical challenges, and you were able to pray. We sent prayer cards to her. She's quite awesome. She's down in Orlando praying for him. He's also the father of uh, Holly, his daughter. Uh, spent a lot of time in Russia, does a lot of things, but his proudest, one of his proudest accomplishments is he, she has two children now that are his two grandkids. So I'm going to go sit with one of my grandsons, and let's welcome Dr. Grady McMurtry. Give him a house of prayer welcome. Well, good morning. 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 Or bom There she is. Hey. That's uh, Portuguese. We have a Brazilian with us, and I do a lot of mission work in Brazil. I go there once a year. This year I'll be going back for my 11th annual mission trip. But uh, I didn't get a very good response. Apparently you don't think it's a good morning. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> come on, come on. Have you forgotten what the Bible says? This is the morning the Lord has made. You shall rejoice in it whether you feel like it or not. Hello. So let's try it one more time. Okay, come on. Good morning. Good morning. Much better. After all, we are concentrating on creation today. Hello, you know. Well, I'm very glad to be back with you, and I do want to extend not only thank you for being a supporter of our ministry and praying for us, but particularly for my wife, um, who fell ill three months ago. Y'all have been praying for her. She's had three miracles already, and those are bona fide, and we are looking forward to her eventual total healing. But she wanted me to express her personal thanks to you while I was here. Now, as a biblical scientific creationist, what are we going to be talking about this morning? I'm going to talk with you about the importance and the relevance of creation, why it is foundational to Christianity. 
And in doing so, I want you to think about why should this issue of creation and evolution be interesting to you? Why should it be important to you? After all, I did used to be an evolutionist. Pastor's quite right. I grew up on the campus of the University of California, Berkeley. One reason why I was a graduate evolutionist. But why should it be important to you? Now, would you agree that everybody, every Christian, is called to share their faith in Christ with others? Right. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> there was only about five of them then. You know, <laughs> Look, look, folks, pastors listening, at least make him feel good. <laughs> Hello? Come on, all Christians are called to share the faith in Christ with others, right? Yes. Much better response. I mean, you know, I, I, we had great singing and so forth, and all of a sudden you guys went... <laughs> I, I guess I'll have to tell you about the story about, about my daughter, Holly. Uh, pastor knows her. And, and yes, she spent many years in Russia. Uh, speaks fluent Russian, excellent, but doesn't even have an American accent. And uh, well, one day she came back from Russia, came to the ki- kitchen and asked my wife a question. And uh, see, I feel like maybe you're f- afraid of responding. This is why I want to share this story with you. Uh, she asked my wife a question. My wife said she didn't know the answer to the question. She said, why don't you go ask your father? And my daughter looked her right now and said, nope, I don't want to know that much about it. You know, if you will not humble yourself, God will send you children. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I have just come to share. Just relax. I do like response during the service, and tonight at 6 o'clock, I like response. So just feel free. And, you know, saying amen occasionally is a good thing. You know, saying amen to a pastor when he's preaching is like saying sick him to a dog. Come on, we need the encouragement. You know, it's just... So why should this be important to you? Well, tell me, if you are supposed to share your faith in Christ with others, and you attempt to, and please believe me, understand, sharing your faith in Christ with others is a perfectly valid way of winning others to Christ. Don't misunderstand me now. But what happens if you're trying to share your faith in Christ with someone else, and they say to you, wait a minute, what about the dinosaurs? What about those millions and billions of supposed years that evolutionists talk about in school? What about that supposed proof for human evolution? What about that stuff? And what happens if you don't have good answers to good questions? See, I'm trying to sensitize you to that the world outside these walls is asking good questions. But if you don't have good answers to good questions, you can't use them. And that's why I'm here today. That's why we have all those materials back there on the table. I didn't bring them for me. I brought them for you. Because we've got good answers to dinosaurs. For instance, do you know that there are 12 places in the Old Testament that mention dinosaurs, that we have human history, artifacts, and art to prove that dinosaurs and people lived together until at least 1883? What about, there's no proof for human evolution. I can teach a child literally to be able to destroy the argument used by evolutionists to attempt to get people, deceive people, into believing that they evolved from apes. And again, there's absolutely no proof whatsoever for those millions and billions of years. Evolutionists just make it up. And today, well, as a matter of fact, I mentioned, when I was here a couple of years ago, we only had 270 scientific arguments that the Earth and the universe were 6,000 years old. They don't have one to prove it's old. But today, we now have 300 scientific arguments to prove the Earth and the universe are only 6,000 years old, and we are finding one new argument on average about one a month. We have overwhelming scientific evidence that those millions and billions of years never, ever existed. They just make it up to fit their religion. And remember that evolution is not science. Evolution is religion. Right. And so what happens if you don't have that knowledge? Then you can't share it with them. And what's going to happen? Two things are going to happen. Number one, you're going to shrink back and say, maybe I'm not really called to evangelism, and you may stop even trying. The other thing is that the person you were trying to reach is going to become more hardened in their position, going to think they were right. They weren't, but they're going to think they were right, and they may become impossible to reach the next time. And because you didn't have good answers to good questions, it may be a part of them never coming to know God. And so this is really important stuff. And why should creation versus evolution be important to you? Ladies and gentlemen, when you talk about the question of origins, where did we come from? Was it evolution? Was it creation? You are talking about the four most important questions in life. Where did you come from? Why are you here? Where are you going? And how should you behave while you're here? And if you want to really know what power is, I'll tell you what power really is. Power is being able to tell somebody where they came from. 
Because if you can tell somebody where they came from, you can tell them where they're going. That's real power. And that's why this should be important to you. Now, I am a biblical scientific creationist. I did used to teach evolution, taught it from the seventh grade to the university level. During all those years, I was never taught that there was a perfectly valid scientific alternative to the various (laughs) theories of evolution. But at the age of 27, in a search for truth, I became a Christian. Then at the age of 28, I became a biblical scientific creationist. Now, what does that mean? Well, a biblical scientific creationist means someone who believes 100% from the Bible, 100% from science, that creation is true, occurred approximately 6,000 years ago in six literal 24-hour days. That's a biblical scientific creationist. And so for the last 42 years, I've been traveling the world teaching on this subject. And why should this be important to you? Well, if you do not understand the importance, the significance of the acceptance of creation versus evolution, you simply fail to understand what is going on around you in the world today. It is the acceptance of creation or evolution that determines your worldview. That's why the ministry I founded is called Creation Worldview Ministries, because we stress a Christian biblical worldview primarily through the avenue of creation science. I do have to stop for just a minute to say something about Pastor Jerry, though. Now that I've got your attention, (laughs) you see, uh, I have known him since before his hair turned white and my hair went missing. Uh, Hello? Yeah. But the analogy to a mule... He's never done that before, but I do have to say, at least I'm glad you didn't say hippopotamus. Uh, (laughs) But why should this be important to you? Now, what is a worldview? You know, to many people, the word worldview is sort of a buzzword and so forth, but what is a worldview? Well, let me define it for you this way. A worldview is like a lens through which you see the world. It's like the lens and glasses and, and the acceptance of creation versus evolution. Well, it changes the shape, the prescription of the lens. And so if your foundation is based in an acceptance of evolution, that causes the shape, the prescription of your lens to be such that when you look through that lens, you say abortion, euthanasia, they're fine. Homosexuality, pornography, lawlessness, racism, they're fine. But if your foundation of thinking is based in creation, that changes the shape, the prescription of your lens. And when you look through that lens, you're going to say abortion, euthanasia, or murder. Amen. That's true. That homosexuality, pornography, lawlessness, racism are wrong, and you're going to know why. Yes. And so I have one dogmatic statement to say to you this morning. That one dogmatic statement is this. All thinking is either going to be done in obedience to God or in disobedience to God. Did you hear that? Well, that was worth a big amen, folks. Amen. All thinking is either going to be in obedience to God or in disobedience to God. Amen. Amen. And with that statement, then why should this be important to you? Well, I want to stress again, it's because it's important to God. If you will, please open your owner's manuals. (laughs) Apparently some of you don't understand. You know, when you buy a new car, you get an owner's manual with it. Is that right? But when you become a Christian, it's the same thing. Now, let me ask you right there. Does that not say owner's manual right there? And down here it says unlimited warranty. Is that correct? He says yes. Okay, sir. (laughs) It's like Pastor Jerry. How close do I have to hold it? (laughs) Back up. I got it. Okay. You really are farsighted. Okay. There's a great little verse of the Old Testament here. And if you have your Russian Bible with you, it's in Psalm 10. Well, you have to remember, I have to know what it says in the Portuguese Bible, but I also have to know what it says in the Russian Bible, and they number the Psalms differently than we do. So if you have an English Bible, please open to Psalm 11. But let's go to verse 3. Notice it says there, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, I think that little verse tells me at least three things. doesn't tell me there are people who are called righteous doesn't tell me that righteous people have a foundation. And doesn't it tell me that if that foundation is broken, righteous people are without hope. Is that correct? Uh Now, you realize that I have this challenge this morning, too. I have to preach the same message two different ways to keep Pastor Jerry awake. I'm working on it. You're working. He's working on it. Now, there's also a little corollary verse I didn't mention in the first service, but Isaiah 58.12 says this, Rebuild the ancient foundations, raise up the ancient foundations, 
And that's what creation scientists like myself are doing. We're raising up, repairing the ancient foundations, repairing the breaches, building them back up again, and calling people to come back to a creation way of thinking. But with that in mind then, well, Psalm 11.3. Keep that on the gummy side of your memory. If you would now, please turn with me to the New Testament, to 1 Corinthians 3.11. Now, many churches and parachurch organizations such as my own have a foundational verse. For instance, you have one right above the choir. That kind of sums up what you're all about. But you've seen these on walls uh, over entrances or exits and so forth. A verse of the Bible, which is sort of the foundation of that ministry's outlook. And this, 1 Corinthians 3.11, is our foundational verse. We put this in all of our printed literature. And that's what it says there. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Is that correct? Now, I'm not changing the word of God. I'm not committing heresy, but I would like to expand that verse and see if you agree with me that in an expanded way, the verse says the following. Doesn't it say this? For there is no other man who can lay any other foundation than the foundation which has already been laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to keep turning your Bibles. You may if you wish. But Colossians 1.16 says that Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. He is the co-creator with the Father and the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 2, verses 6 and 7 says he's the chief cornerstone, the cornerstone the builders rejected. Is that correct? Now, again, being a full-time missionary myself, I work on the five continents. I would go to six, just haven't had an invitation to get to Antarctica yet. But I'll go if they'll give it to me. Uh, but, But... I'm very sensitive about something. I am not interested in a translation that is word for word. How many of you have heard that expression, there's no such thing as a perfect translation? Or you always lose something in the translation, is that correct? And so I will not work with a translator. I only work with interpreters. It's a much higher level because you see, I am interested, concerned about an interpretation by concepts not a translation that's word for word. Now, when you read 1 Peter 2, 6 and 7, Jesus is called the chief cornerstone. But you read that in English, yet it was originally written in Greek in the New Testament, correct? But it's a quotation of Psalm 118, originally written in Hebrew. Now, if you lose something in one translation, how much do you lose in two? Hello? So what does it really mean? Well, if you look at the Hebrew, it means he is the first chief primary cornerstone, the cornerstone the builders rejected. And so, uh, as you will find out if you've not been with me before, or I haven't been with you, uh, I have a brain-stretching ministry. Hello? Yeah, I come into town and I stretch brains. I can tell you after 45 mission trips to Russia that you and I have brothers and sisters in Christ who used to wash brains. Well, some of you that are old enough know what I'm talking about. But I come into town and I stretch brains. Now, to show you how this works, uh, I want to show you the significance of these verses I've been sharing with you. In order to do that, would you be willing to do a little scientific experiment with me? Okay, that was about 12 of you. (laughs) Look, folks, I have two doctorates. I'm a licensed scientist. I'm licensed to do experiments. You've got nothing to worry about. (laughs) And you don't have to worry about safety. I'm wearing goggles. So are you all willing to do a little scientific experiment with me? Much better. Thank you. That was good. I like that. I may take you with me more often. Well, what I want you to do is I want you to think of this room as the only room on the property and that it is rectangularly shaped. Now, I think that if you look at this room, it will be a challenge to think of it as rectangularly shaped. But think of it as a rectangle. And tell me, in a rectangular room, how many cornerstones are there? Excellent. Come on, you can respond. There's no trick questions in any of my presentations, I promise you. There are four cornerstones, but only one of them is the first chief primary cornerstone, correct? And would you agree with me that according to the architect, according to the, uh, well, the builder and the uh, building permit person, and you certainly know you have those in Georgia. uh, Hello? You ever try to get anything built around here? Well, there's only one perfect place for the first cornerstone, is that correct? And then by angle and by distance, we set the other three corners. Is that correct? Right? So let's just do a little experiment. See why this should be important to you. So let's take the first chief primary cornerstone of this rectangular room and put it in that corner over there. 
but we're not going to put it in the perfect place. Instead, we're going to put it one millionth of an inch out of place. Now, I think you'll agree that's not much, correct? Just a millionth of an inch? But now we'll then go down this wall for 150 feet and set the second cornerstone down there. Will it be in the right place? Excuse me? Now, it'd be a little bit off, right? Now, in science, what we do is the exact same experiment a second time, but we change one thing and one thing only. We want to see what is the influence of that, just that one change in our experiment. And so let's do our experiment a second time. This time we're going to take Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, put him in that corner, put him one millionth of an inch out of place. Now, so far I've done exactly the same thing, correct? Only difference in our experiment. Instead of going down this wall for 150 feet, this time I'm going to go down that wall for 6,000 years. Are we going to be in the right place? Oh, you're going to be way off. Do you see how important it is to put the creator of the universe in the correct place to begin with so that 6,000 years down the road you will be in the right place? That's how important this is. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I have actually been coming to this part of the country. And I haven't known Pastor Jerry that this, that the, as long as I'm going to talk about but I've been coming to this area of the country since 1963. And I will tell you, and I think you will agree, I've seen a little bit of building going on around here. Y'all knew know what I meant there, didn't you? Yeah, there's been a little bit of building on around here, right? Now, I want you to think about something. We've been talking about foundations. We're talking about cornerstones, right? Let's think, how do you build a house? You've all seen it around here and so forth. And the first thing you do when you build a house is you build the roof first, right? Come on, folks. The first thing you do when you build a house is you build the roof first, right? Oh, y'all are not thinking about this in a clear, linear, logical way. The first thing you do when you build a house is you build a roof first. That way, when you put the shingles on the roof, if somebody falls off, they don't get hurt. (laughs) And then after you finish the roof, don't you raise it up and put the walls underneath? What do you mean, no? I I appeal to you. Is that not where the, the statement to raise the roof came from? And then once you've done that, don't you slide the foundation in underneath? No. no. Come on, folks. No, you're, you're not going to buy this, are you? <laughs> now, how do you build a house? The first thing you do is you build the foundation first. Is that correct? Then you put up the sticks and the bricks, correct? You build the foundation first. Then you build the structure. Is that correct? And when you leave here and go to lunch today, I want you to think about the Bible in a whole new way. Think with me, the Bible, well, 66 books, two covenants or testaments as we sometimes call it, the Old Testament historically divided into four sections. But when you leave here, I want you to think about it this way. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, that's the foundation. The rest of the Bible are the sticks and the bricks. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, that is the foundation. The rest of the Bible is the structure. There's not one significant Christian teaching that does not first start in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and I would defy you to name one. As a matter of fact, I'll give you a partial list and see if you agree. And it's only a partial list, but what if you want to know about life, death, man, woman, human relationship, marriage, food, clothing, kinsman redeemer, blood atonement, crucifixion, how am I doing? Well, that was a bad little partial list, was it? But all of those originate in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The rest of the Bible is simply the sticks and the bricks. Is that correct? And so, again, why should creation versus evolution be important to you? Well, because it's important to God. Would you please open your owner's manuals? It's not very far and go to the Gospel of John. I'd like to go to the Gospel of John chapter 5 with you. And we're going to share three verses, but before we do, I just want to point out, these three verses, Jesus is speaking, and Jesus is speaking to the Sanhedrin. Now, who, what is the Sanhedrin? Many of you are familiar with the word, but it means 70-sided object, mathematically, but it refers to the 70 righteous Jewish elders, the leaders of the nation of Judah. There were 71 seats because the high priest had a seat as well, but the 70 refers to the 70 lay elders of the nation of Judah. And, well, the Sanhedrin was made out of three groups of men. You're probably familiar with these words as well. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. But many people forget 
scribes work for the Pharisees or Sadducees, and therefore, religiously, philosophically, theologically, there are only two groups. And it's important to understand what these two groups believed. Pharisees believed the entire Old Testament was the word of God. Every jot, every tittle from Genesis to what we call Malachi and so on, that was God's holy word. And a Pharisee believed in a personal, bodily, individual resurrection from the dead sometime in the future. The Sadducees said, no, no. They said only the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses, that was God's holy word. But to a Sadducee, the rest of the Old Testament was just good history, good literature, good poetry, but it was not God's holy word. And a Sadducee was sad, you see, (laughs) because they did not believe in resurrection. And I think that would make you sad, wouldn't it? So we've got two very different groups here. One believes the entire Old Testament, resurrection. One believes only the first five books, no resurrection. But what was the one thing that united them as a nation? What was the one thing they all agreed on? They all agreed, if Moses wrote it, it was God's holy word. That is basically the only thing they agreed on. And Jesus is speaking to them in John. We're going to start at verse 45. And Jesus says this, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Jesus doesn't accuse us of anything. Jesus is not our accuser. Who is our accuser? Well, his Hebrew name is Hasatan. You say Satan. Sometimes we abbreviate him with a nickname devil and so forth. But but Hasatan, what does his name mean? It means the adversary. But we have an advocate. And Jesus says, I don't accuse you of anything. Satan may, but I don't. He says, the, but notice what he says. Wait, wait a minute. He says, the one who accuses you. Now he's addressing the Sanhedrin who all believed in Moses. Is that correct? He says, the one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. They all believed in the writings of Moses. And they says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And then he says this, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus used an ancient form of argument that day they all clearly understood 2,000 years ago. The form of logic goes like this. Any appeal to Moses is an appeal to his most famous book, the book of Genesis. Any appeal to the book of Genesis is an appeal to the most famous story contained in the book of Genesis, the story of creation. And what Jesus said 2,000 years ago to the Sanhedrin was, if you do not believe in creation, you have no need for him, or you have no need for Christ. He was standing there that day. Now think with me. He told them, if you don't believe in creation, you have no need of me. And why? Well, it's very simple. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I don't know what you personally believe. Remember, you are allowed to have your own opinion, but you're not allowed to have your own set of facts. Some of you apparently need to think about that one. But think with me, if you do believe in millions and billions of supposed years for which there is not one scientific proof, why would you want to do that? Well, the only reason you would want to believe that there have been millions and billions of years in the past is to believe that life and death have been going on for millions and billions of supposed years, that the dinosaurs and so forth were living 200 to 65 million supposed years ago, that no human being ever saw a dinosaur and so forth. That's why you would want to believe that. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if that is true, if there have been millions and billions of years, if things have been living and dying for millions and billions of years, then death is common. There is nothing special about it, and human sin isn't the causative agent. And if that is true, the death of one man on a cross is meaningless. It's just another death. It is only when you come to understand creation correctly that it occurred 6,000 years ago. That God put one man and one woman there and told them they could screw things up, and they did. And that everything has been going downhill since then. That, That as it says in Romans 5, it's the sin of the first man, Adam, that caused death to come into the universe. Then and only then can you understand how the death of one sinless man on a cross can atone for the sins of the world. And if you do not believe in creation, you have no need for Christ. Hello? 
And that's the argument that he was making that day. Now, again, let's think of some universally accepted principles in science. There's a principle of science called the principle of certainty. Would you agree we all like to be certain? Come on, we all like to be certain, right? Oh, well, for example, you would like to be certain you married the right person, correct? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently some of you are in trouble. <laughs> but we all like to be certain, correct? Now, the principle of certainty states, in order to be absolutely certain about anything, you have to know absolutely all there is to know about it. There cannot be one thing you do not know about it, because if there's even one thing you do not know, and then you found out about it, it could completely change your decision on something. So the principle of certainty is you must know all there is to know. You have to have total, complete, 100% knowledge. But of course, what's the problem? No human being can have total, complete, 100% knowledge. Believe me, just ask my wife. <laughs> and, well, well, think with me for just a second. I was driving up here yesterday uh, from Orlando, Florida, where I live. And, uh, well, for instance, I was coming through the areas of growing cotton down south, you know, down around Valdosta, and the peanut area, and the peach and pecan areas, and so forth. And, and just think about it for a second. Somebody might live 70, 80, 90 years learning all there is to know about growing peaches, and when they die, they're going to know less than 2% of all there is to know about growing peaches. And you know I'm telling you the truth, because you know the more you know about something, the more you realize there's an infinite amount more to learn, and the truth is we're just never going to know very much. Is that correct? And let's apply the principle of certainty to creation versus evolution. Ladies and gentlemen, the evolutionist believes in evolution by faith. It is a religion. How can I say that? It's very simple. The evolutionist has some evidence they think supports their position. They tell fairy tales for adults around it to make it sound logical, plausible, but they cannot know it is true because they do not have total, complete knowledge, correct? So they have some evidence they think supports their position. They tell fairy tales for adults to, around it to make it sound reasonable, logical, plausible. But just because something is reasonable, logical, or plausible does not make it true. Is that correct? And so, well, what happens? They believe it by faith, and because they believe in evolution, they also believe that there is no one else who can exist that does know it all. Well, let's apply then to the creationist. I openly admit to you, I don't know it all. I mean, I'm reasonably educated, two doctorates and all that kind of stuff. That'll, well, you know, that and 69 cents, I'll get you a refill out the Circle K. <laughs> but I'm a reasonably educated person, but I don't by any stretch of the imagination know it all. I openly admit it to you right here now. I don't know it all. Hello? But you come today, obviously this morning, you come tonight at 6, we're going to be talking about the flood. We're going to show you the actual physical evidence of exactly what happened at the time of the flood. You will see it for yourself. You don't have to have me overwhelm you. You'll see it for yourself. And we have tons and tons of evidence that we have an evidence-based faith. As a matter of fact, we have more than enough evidence to convict. But I admit, I believe it by faith, because I don't know it all, Correct. But ladies and gentlemen, what is the difference between the faith of the evolutionist and the faith of the creationist? The difference is this. I know the one who does know it all. I have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. Now, would you agree he does know it all? Is that correct? Yes. So my faith is not based upon my knowledge because uh, I don't have total complete knowledge, Right. But he does. Now watch what happens. My faith is not based upon my own knowledge and so forth. It is based upon his. And what does that do? Well, that then makes my faith absolutely certain. And ask yourself a question. Which is the better faith? Which is the superior? And don't be reluctant to say superior. Which is the superior faith? Christianity, based in creation, certain and always will be, or the evolutionist faith, which is based in uncertainty and always will be until it's too late. Oh, Christianity is a vastly superior faith. Is that correct? Yeah. And I mentioned to you that I came to Christ, became a Christian in a search for truth. Now I'm here just to share with you this. You see, ladies and gentlemen, I came to be a Christian in a search for truth when I came to realize that truth is a person. It's not a concept. 
Think with me. You can travel the world. You can get all the degrees you want. You can see all the learned men and women you want. You can read all the books you want and so forth. But you will never, ever work and attain truth because truth is not a concept. Truth is a person. If you want to have access to all the truth there is in the entire universe, all you have to do is ask that person to come into your life. And if you don't believe me that truth is a person and not a concept, I'm going to ask you to again, in your Bibles, it's only a few pages, just turn back with me to John chapter 1, would you? John chapter 1. Now, there is an ancient tradition of the church, some of you may be familiar with it, I think a few of you certainly are, it's called responsive reading. Anybody here familiar with that? Something called responsive reading, right? It's an ancient tradition of the church, I think it ought to be brought back, frankly, uh, if you don't know what responsive reading is, I read some of the text, then you read it out loud together, then I read, then you read, then I read, then you read. Okay, this, It's been done for centuries. Now, uh, there's only one rule to our responsive reading this morning is I'm going to read everything. <laughs> well, except for one word. When we get to that one word, I want you to read it out loud and together and be boisterous, Okay. Well, we'll try it out. Let's take a look at John chapter 1, verse 14. Remember, I'm going to read everything except one word. When I get there, then you read it out loud all together, right? Verse 14, John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and... Truth. That was truly weak. <laughs> Come on, folks, a little stronger the next time. Okay, we'll just call that rehearsal. But it says that Jesus is full of truth. Is that correct? Well, okay, second chance. Let's go to verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth. Ah, that's better. Grace and truth. Notice that we're realized through the person of Christ. That Jesus was full of truth, and truth is realized through the person of Jesus Christ. Is that correct? Oh, now would you please turn to John chapter 8. We're going to take a look slowly at 831, 832. Now, I, I don't want you to forget your spot in all of this, but I just want to start off slowly reading this. You'll notice in John 8, 31, Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed him, and I want to stop our responsive reading for just a moment. Did you just hear what we just read? Jesus is speaking to those Jews who had become believers already. Is that correct? Now, these are believing Christian Jews before the proof that he was who he said he was. This is before his death, burial, and resurrection, correct? And so even before the evidence that he was who he said he was, here we have believing Christian Jews, correct? And these believing Christian Jews, Jesus is saying to them the following. He says, if, that's the biggest word in the Bible right there. If you abide in my word. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the word abide in the Greek there, and I think that Pastor Jerry will back me up on this, in the Greek is in a continuous sense of the word. It would be better translated, if you continuously abide, or if you abide continuously, either construction would work, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth. Some of you forgot. Come on. And you shall know the truth. And the shall make or set you free. Is that correct? Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, I do work on five continents, and I can tell you right now, I have eyewitnessed that truth will set you free. I don't care whether you need a healer, a deliverer, a savior, truth will set yes, you yes. free. Yes. Yes. I've seen it many times on many continents. Well, let's take it one more chapter. Would you please turn to chapter 14 of John? And this time, while you're turning, I just want to ask everybody a question. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there are no trick questions in any of my presentations. I promise you that. How many of you have ever walked into the kitchen and picked up a dry sponge? Yep. Come on, I should see every hand in the house. Come on, you walk in the kitchen and pick up a dry, even if you just move it away from where you would need to be. Thank you. Now, please tell me, how do you get to see it full size? You've got to wet it. Now, I want to teach you a good Bible study technique that is also incredibly good for reading legal documents. Hello? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to teach this as a Bible study technique, but it's a great way to read legal documents. Now, I work in 20 languages on five continents, and I can assure you everybody does this around the world. We all abbreviate our sentences. How do we abbreviate a sentence? It's quite simple. We make a statement and then we apply it to several other statements in a series of commas. 
Now, I don't care whether it's a legal document or the Bible. Anytime you see a sentence constructed that way, stop and say, wait a minute, that's a dry sponge. And if you want to see it full size, you've got to add water. And so we're going to read John 14, 6 slowly. I am going to add water to a dry sponge, but please do not forget your part. You'll notice in verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, and I am the and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now please tell me, ladies and gentlemen, did Jesus Christ say, I'm uh, telling you the truth? No. Did he say, uh, I'm sharing the truth with you? No. No. What did Jesus Christ say? He said, I am the truth. And truth is a person and not a concept. Is that correct? He then goes on to say this, no one comes to the Father but through me. Earlier I said that there are people outside these walls that are asking good questions. And if you don't have good answers, which we have... But if you don't have the good answers, they've got no reason to pay any attention to you at all. Is that correct? Now I want you to make your, just want to make you sensitive to this. The world outside these walls is also saying, oh, we're all trying to get to the same God. We're just using different roads. And they will say, oh, well, you know, the Buddhists, the Hindus, the Zoroastrians, the Taoists, the Shintoists, the New Agers, they've all got some truth. And we're all just taking different roads trying to get to the same God. Hello? And then they look at us Christians, and they falsely accuse us. They look at us and say, oh, you Christians, you Christians are so intolerant. You say there's only one way to get to God. Well, ladies and gentlemen, when the world outside these walls says that, that we are intolerant, that I am intolerant, the world outside these walls is making a really big mistake. I'm not intolerant. I wish everybody would go to heaven. How about you? Yeah. Hello? Yeah. The more the merrier, right? No, 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 I'm not intolerant. God is intolerant. You see, it's his rule, it's not mine. I'm just the messenger. Don't blame me. The fact of the matter is God says there's only one way to know him, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. Is that correct? Absolutely. Oh. Well, just two more verses, and we'll finish and so forth. Turn this back over to Brother Jerry. But in the same chapter, would you just turn down with me to two verses I'd like to ask you to come down to verses 16 and 17. These two verses are a classic example in the New Testament of the triune nature of God. You'll notice in verse 16, Jesus is speaking, and Jesus says, And I, Jesus, will ask the Father, and he, the Father, will give you another. The word another translated there from Greek means equal but different. Equal but different. You see, You may or may not know that for the first 200 years of the Christian church, there was an argument about whether the Holy Spirit was God, equal to the Father and the Son, or merely a force. And after 200 years, the decision was he's God, equal to the Father and the Son, because Jesus said he's equal but different. And you'll notice that Jesus then says, who is this one who is equal but different? He says, Well, I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to give you another that's equal but different. One called typically the helper or comforter can be correctly translated counselor or lawyer. Hello? Don't we sometimes call lawyers counselor? That one word in Greek can be translated all four ways. Helper, comforter, counselor, lawyer. That he may be with you forever until the end of time. And Jesus tells us his name is the spirit of truth. Hello? So, you see, you forgot your part now. He's the spirit of? Truth. A little louder. He's the spirit of? Truth. That was better. And notice he then goes on to say, Whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. He will be with you, the helper, the comforter, the counselor, the lawyer on earth. But he will also be with you and in you. Every Christian believer has the spirit of truth personally dwelling within them. I have this on the authority of scripture. And so, ladies and gentlemen, tonight at six, I I want you to be back, of course, but when I'm speaking, I always like to have interaction, always like to have response and so forth. But this one time, 
This one time, I'm going to ask you to remain silent, but answer a question for me, please. Just be honest with yourself. I want you to be silent because you can't be absolutely honest with me. You can only be absolutely honest with yourself. But stop for a moment and ask yourself this one question. Quietly, silently. Do I have the spirit of truth personally dwelling within me? Just ask yourself that question. Do I have the spirit of truth personally dwelling within me? Now, I have the spirit of truth dwelling within me. Brother Jerry has the spirit of truth within him. I know many of you do. But just ask yourself that question. And if you can honestly say, yes, you're a Christian. Nothing else needs to be said. However, I'm going to just say this to you as Brother Jerry is coming up. To, if you said no, my two parting comments would be, number one, I applaud your honesty because you had to be honest to say it. And number two, I want you to know you can. You can have the spirit of truth personally dwelling within you today before you leave this property. Amen. And Brother Jerry is going to talk with you about how to do that. Thank you, Dr. Grady. I can't wait to get into Noah's flood tonight. I don't want to get wet, but I'm going to get into the word. Spirit of truth, knowing that. Well, again, Jesus has told us exactly how that takes place. Uh, and, he, and he explained it in a concept to one of the leaders of the Jewish religion. He was a religious teacher. I think by the guy the name of Nicodemus. And he came to Jesus by night. And he was asking him, you know, how can I? How, how can this take place? How, what has to happen? And in the context of sharing with him this process of being born again or this rebirth, Jesus uh, used we we quote it from John three sixteen, but that's part of the context of him sharing with Nicodemus that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but know about everlasting life. Right. No, but what? But have, possess it within, living within us, eternal life in the form of his son. And that's what he explained to Nicodemus. And that's what that simple verse has been used to share the gospel. Probably then uh, if we just picked one verse than any other verse out of all scripture, it's knowing that God loves you, that he loves you so much that he, that he, he gave his only begotten son Jesus Christ, who died, not for his sin, but for our sin. And I love the importance. It was the, it was the verse of Psalms 311 that uh, many years ago in a, in a conference with, uh, with Ken Ham listened to that, realizing the importance of the foundations of God's word. And we, have, we as Christians, and I'm digressing a second, I'm coming back, but we as Christians have done a grave disservice when we have tried to make excuses for the truth of God's word to make it fit with false science. Because if you discredit the first part of the book of Genesis, if you discredit creation and the biblical count of creation, when you get to the New Testament, when you get to the crucifixion and the resurrection, you've given too much ground and it makes no sense. And when there's no, it makes no sense, there's no hope. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and he will set you free. It's him. So this morning, as, as Dr. Grady has asked us, and uh, did a great job of, of really not giving us his opinion, but just giving us God's word, and taking us to the truth of God's word that makes all the difference in the world. And that we not only, that we have opportunity to have God's truth living in us in the form of the Holy Spirit of God. And if you've never done that, it's really just putting your faith and trust in him. It's as simple as saying, God, I do believe that Jesus is your son, that he died for me. And I want to invite him to come into my life. And you say, well, I don't, Pastor, I don't understand all that means. Well, you know, you probably never will. I don't understand all that means. All I know is that there is a, there is a point of where we look at his, his truth, we look at his word, and we trust it. And we trust it. And we say, by faith, I'm asking to come into my heart. Forgive me my sins. Change me. If you've never done that, 
I'd encourage him. I'm going to give you an opportunity. We had some people first service that just invited Christ in their life, changed their life, changed a born-again new believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that while we live in a seemingly an ever-changing web or flow of culture and of influence, and Lord, it's not all good. You know that. Thank you in the midst of all that, there is something that never changes, and that's your word, and that's Jesus Christ. I think your word says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your word, Lord, over and over and over again, we're told that this is the anchor, this is a solid, this is a foundation that we can build upon and know for certain, for certain, that we have eternal life. Now, Father, it's my request right now that as, as we have listened and as your Holy Spirit has taken the simple truths of your word and through our ears into our minds and now somewhere even deeper than that in our very heart, there are those here that know they need to ask you to come into their life right now. Lord, may your Holy Spirit welcome them. If that's you with their heads bowed and eyes closed, I want all of you, first of all, to say with me that verse, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And now, if that's you and you say, I need to do that right now, just in your, in your mind, in your heart, just say, God, that's me. I do believe Jesus Christ is your son. He died for me. I don't understand everything, but I understand enough to know that if I ask you to come into my life, you will. And you'll forgive me, and you'll make me your son and daughter. You'll live within me. Now I'm asking you to do that. In Jesus' name. With their heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer, I'm not going to ask you to sign anything. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I am going to pray for you and welcome you to the family of God. As, as Christians are just praying, if you prayed that prayer, just put your hand up quickly. Let me see it. I'm going to pray for you as we close in prayer this morning. Just put it up and put it right back down. You prayed that. Okay? Any? Father, we thank you for your truth and for the power of the truth to change everything and to change us. Redeemer, Healer, Savior, Deliverer, that's you and more. And now, Father, I pray you'd bless us as we leave this place. Prepare us for your word that we're going to receive this evening. In Christ I pray. Amen.